1: take your questions on how to do the same the phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program it is a free call 1-855-450-NOAH that's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com my name is noah July. i am your host delighted to be here with you as another episode of the ask noah show kicks off this hour no steve this week he's off gallivanting around texas so i'm on my own but that's okay we'll dig into your feedback and uh, ride the train as always Our first email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, hi there, guys. I'm not an expert on this, but if my understanding is right, ZFS will be continued to be available on future versions of Ubuntu. Canonical will be deprecating ZSys in the future versions, though. ZFS on root and ZSys are two totally separate things. ZSys departure from Ubuntu doesn't mean the end of ZFS on Ubuntu. A cool project called ZFS boot menu can be a great alternative to ZSys. A link to the project page, any links to docs.zfsbootmenu.org. If someone is interested in a lightweight alternative of WikiJS, I'd highly encourage them to take a look at Pepperminty Wiki. It is simple to install, upload a single file, doesn't require complex databases, and has all the usual Wiki features. Noah, this one has a dark mode and, drumroll please, random page option. Link to the project page, peppermint.mooncarrot.space. Thank you very much, Baku. I appreciate you writing in. So, you know, the, the, I, I'm glad I, 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 I reached out to a couple of people after I saw ZFS was being deprecated and just say, hey, you know, any, any word on the street of what might happen to ZFS and Ubuntu? Is that a, a sign of things to come? And the answer I got back was a resounding no. Um, ZFS is there to stay. And obviously, you know, the primary development is happening in OpenZFS, so it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I, It just it would fundamentally break a whole bunch of stuff if if that were ever to happen. But you're right. ZFS and Zsys are two entirely separate things. And I'll be honest with you. I I recognize that there is value to having the ability to roll back, do a kernel rollback, those sorts of things. But I'm not personally in that boat. and And here's why. I have transitioned to this model of treating computers like cattle as opposed to pets. Therefore, there is no special, super special config. Even on my day-to-day laptop that I use every single day, everything that I need to make it my puppy is reproducible via Ansible. So there's very little benefit in me having to roll back. I have no problem, zero, zip, zilch of blowing my operating system away. And replacing it and starting all over. In fact, and I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, I was reading one of Kevin Mitnick's latest books, uh, Ghost in the Wire. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is starting from a premise of being anonymous and then working your way up to identifying yourself only when you absolutely have to. And at first it sounded like a gigantic pen in the tuchus to me. And I thought, there's no way. There's just no way. I don't. I can't do that. And But I tried it and I gave it a shot. And so... What that looks like is you set Firefox up to every time that you open a new Firefox window, you're essentially getting a fresh browser. There are no cookies and it doesn't have any history, nothing like that, which makes long you get to banking sites. And there are some sites that just like Google, just it doesn't know how to deal with itself. It gets so upset that, hey, this is a new person every time. That's crazy. But after a few weeks, I kind of settled into it. And so having my my PIA private Internet access VPN set up automatically connects my Connection tunnels out to a, a set point in the world, then from there it goes out to all of the individual services, and I stay anonymous, or as anonymous as I can be. I haven't found it to be too much of a burden. As part of that process, again, it strips away this idea of everything is saved, everything is set up the way I want. Every, I import a couple of bookmarks, a couple of folders of bookmarks, really. I sign into my password manager, and now I have access to a web browser. So it's all of like 30 seconds to set that up from scratch. So I, I don't care a lot. But if you're interested, if you're one of those people that like, man, I spent hours dealing in the perfect setup, this is a great way to do that. Because the, undeniably, being able to roll snapshots back is is just amazing. In fact, we had we had an ultimate speed client and they had suffered ransomware in the past and they suffered it again. But this time we had a true box in there. And so they called us and said, oh, my gosh, hold on. Hold on, hold on. We log in, run a couple of commands, check now. Oh my gosh, that's great. Yes, it is, isn't it? So it can definitely save your butt if you need it. And so we'll have a link to uh, the ZFSbootmenu.org in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And yes, if you are looking for a lightweight wiki, uh, pepperminty wiki, great thing to check out. I will tell you that I have just gone to the moon and back to get everything moved over from MediaWiki over to WikiJest, so I'm just, I'm a little, the, the wound is a little too raw for me to try to jump around right now, but I'll definitely circle back and, and take a look at it. Our second email comes in uh, from Adam. Adam writes in and says, Hi, no and Steve. Life circumstances have caused me to reevaluate my current situation. Long story short, I currently work as a data center tech. Before this, I was a Linux system administrator for three years, and then my position was outsourced. Linux has been my passion for several years, and now I'm trying to get a job doing that again. And this is part of the change that I need to make myself. I'm not necessarily asking for a paid position, but something that I could work on or get me some experience so that I can add it to my resume. How do I go about finding some places to gain experience to make yourself more attractive for a Linux position? So it's a great question, Adam. There's a couple ways that you can do it. So the, the, the first thing that you can do is you can start volunteering for open source projects because oftentimes what will happen is other companies will find people that are volunteering for those projects and they'll pick you up. Red Hat has is notorious for this. They'll go find, typically Red Hat is doing it where they'll go find somebody that is running a project or doing a project and say, you're doing a really good job over there. Come do that for us and we'll just hand you a paycheck. Just keep doing what you're doing. Um, I... I want to connect with you directly. I think um, we might be able to help you or might be able to get you connected to some places uh maybe even at Alta Speed. So I, I would I would love to to have that dialogue. The timing I would encourage you to go back and 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 listen to a previous episode of the show uh the Alta Speed Origin Stories. And it kind of walks through where we are as a company and kind of where we're skating to and I think that will give you some insight in into your uh, into your task. But I I love the idea of Getting back into Linux, I like the premise that you're starting from, and I love the idea that you're willing to give a taste of your services, so to speak, uh, so that you can further. You've got the exact right attitude. This is the right path to go down. Uh, you just need to get connected a little bit more to some of the community resources, and I think people will. People are looking for for talent, so I I don't think you'll have a problem landing a job at all. Our third email comes in from Mike. Mike says, "Hi, Noah and Steve." I want to thank you for helping me diagnose a network issue, even though you never knew I had a problem. (laughs) We're that good. But now I need to know why it was solved. Needless to say, I'm a Linux hobbyist, not one of your industry pro listeners. I was in the process of writing you a huge email describing my pfSense network with two VLANs and the issue where an MB client on VLAN 130 could not access the media server on VLAN 100. Everything else worked great, except the clients on VLAN 130 could not access the media server no matter what I did in PFSense. Clients on the media server's VLAN 100 could access the media server just fine. And As I was writing the troubleshooting, I found the issue with Docker networking on the media server itself. I found almost all of my Docker networks were using a 172 address, while my PFSense network is using a 192 system. I noticed that my Docker containers had networks which used a 192 address. When deleted, those Docker networks, presto, My issue was resolved. My clients across VLANs could now access the media server. My question, what did I do? I have no idea why a couple of container networks with the 192 address kept my network from being able to communicate across two VLANs, even though the communication on the same VLAN was fine. Do you have any sage wisdom to help to explain what was going on? Lastly, I'm using Portainer to manage my Docker containers. Is there anything that I can do to prevent Portainer from assigning 192 addresses in the future? Thanks for all you do for the community, Mike. So if you kind of think about this like an address at your house, it's the best way to 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 explain this. So your router does something. Well, actually, all machines do something called a gateway of last resort. And essentially what that is, is if you're existing on the same network. So you're on a one ninety two address and somebody else is on a one ninety two address. It goes to the switch and says, hey, Mr. Switch. Who has this address? Which MAC address do I send these frames to? And the switch goes and and references the ARP table and says, well, that IP address is attached to this MAC address and this MAC address is sitting on this port. So I'm going to send those frames over here and it and it handles that for you. And so when you're working all in one network, that's fine. When the computer, when the client, whatever it is, doesn't know where to send network packets, it says, "Hey, I don't. I'm not aware of that. I don't see it anywhere on my on on, on anything that I can see." It sends it to its gateway of last resort. It's sometimes called a default router, a default gateway, and that is your router. So in your in the case of pfSense when you have two vlans effectively you have two networks and what pf sense is doing is it takes the traffic from one vlan and says i know about both of these networks i know where this goes and then, presumably that you have all of your firewall rules set up, forwards that traffic onto the appropriate network and it makes its way to the appropriate client. The problem that you ran into is when you had a 192 address on your Docker container, that machine no longer knows to send the packets to its gateway of last resort because it thinks it knows where the 192 network is. It says it's right here, right in my Docker network. See, it's right here. But it can't find that specific host. And so you that's why you're having trouble getting between those two VLANs. And so when you remove that second 192 network, now the computer says, I know about all the 172 networks that are around here. That's all my Docker networks. Where's this 192 thing you're talking about? Don't know. Send it to PFSense. PFSense, do you know? PFSense says, yep, I do right over here. And Bob's your uncle. It works. As far as using Portainer to stop assigning a 192 address, I don't know off the top of my head, um, but I'm sure somebody in the community will write back live at asknoahshow.com and let me know. Our third email comes in from Hive H. This is from the chat room at Geek Lab Dog Ninja. Following your recommendation to look around Sophos firewalls, I've had a great experience. I found the Sophos SG330 and XG330 are essentially the same hardware. I've converted one of them to OpenSense. Installing OpenSense is easy since there's an HDMI port on the back. I just popped a new SSD drive in there and booted off the P OpenSense install image on a USB drive. Installed onto the USB SATA drive and everything just works. For fun, I swapped the i5-6500 CPU for an i7-6700T CPU and the i7-6700T is recognized by the BIOS and works fine, reducing the power to about 4 watts with a kilowatt. I also replaced a fan with the Noctua from the box and it's very quiet. For more fun, I converted a watch guard. XTM5 box 505 to OpenSense. All that was required was putting OpenSense on the boot image with several console support on a compact flash drive and then booting off of that using a Cisco USB console cable to run the OpenSense installer. I installed OpenSense on an SD drive. Since there's already power in the box, all I did was add a SATA cable. This obviously has less horsepower than the SORFOS box, but it was only $40 on eBay. Anyway, I thought your listeners might get some interesting some of the details from the folks that have followed your advice to keep hardware out of the landfill and great and get a great overall value. Thanks for all you do. So yeah, thank you, Hive. I appreciate it, and it is those OpenSense boxes are some of literally some of the best hardware out there to uh, to run. Uh, routing software on there and yeah it is it's a much more green solution than buying another piece of hardware it's great to be able to use some of this really well-built enterprise hardware because at the end of the day underneath the underneath the box it's just a little intel computer and it just happens to be a little intel computer that happens to have really nice big pipey ethernet cards in it and is set up specifically to be a firewall appliance all right. We've got an interview with the Jellyfin folks. They're standing by first. We'll head over to Linux Newswire and get the latest from JT. Here he is.
0: From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT.
2: For the week of February 5th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source headlines. Now in its 20th year of supporting and promoting the free and open source community, Scale20x, the Southern California Linux Expo, will be held in the Pasadena Convention Center, March 9th to March 12th. LF Energy, the Linux Foundation's sub foundation focused on the power sector, has announced four different conferences for 2023. And Red Hat has announced a display HDR Hackfest in Borno in the Czech Republic in late April. The Slack's minimalist distribution has released version 15.0.1 with a new Dynefile FS fuse file system for storing persistent changes onto boot media. Hot on the heels of OBS Studio 29 release, the OBS team has rolled out 29.0.1 with a lot of fixes. Docker 23 has been released. The open source tycoon deluxe remake, OpenTTD, has released version 13. LibreOffice 7.5 is out. Ebook Library Manager Calibre has released version 6.12. And OpenSSL 3.0.7 has been released. Royal Ransomware is the latest ransomware operation to add support for encrypting Linux devices in its most recent malware variants, specifically targeting VMware ESXi virtual machines. According to cybersecurity company Sentinel-1, a Chinese threat actor known as Dragonspark has been exploiting the open-source remote administration tool Ratspark in recent attacks on East Asian enterprises. Hewlett-Packard Enterprise issued a critical alert last Wednesday tied to its OneView infrastructure management platform, warning of a use-after-free vulnerability that allows remote attackers to execute arbitrary code on targeted systems, leak data, or create conditions for ripe or denial-of-service attacks. NetApp and IBM have also issued warnings as well. Doubling down on its commitment to full open-source reproducibility of the most current Rocky Linux bug fixes, security patches, and feature enhancements, CIQ engineers have released the Rocky Linux 9 Errata subsystem as an open-source project and fully integrated it with their open-source build system called Peridot. In the other direction, the company Datadog allegedly asked the developer to kill the open source data export tool that he had written. The developer behind the jailbreaking tool Rainstorm has released evidence that Voice.ai is violating the terms of the GPLv3 and LGPLv2.1 by bundling Pratt and LibgCrypt into the Voice AI's proprietary software. Google appears to be laying off many of its best employees in their open source program office, including Chris DeBona, the founder of the group, as well as the co-creator of Samba, Jeremy Allison. Intel's risk 5 dev development Pathfinder, which was revealed in August of 2022, appears to be discontinued with Intel having no plans to support it. GitHub CEO Thomas Dumkey says that open source developers should be made exempt from the European Union's proposed new artificial intelligence regulations. The AI Act assigns applications of AI to 3 risk categories. First, Applications and systems that create an unacceptable risk, such as government-run social scoring of the type used in China, are banned. Second, high-risk applications, such as CV scanning tools that ranks job applicants, are subject to specific legal requirements. Lastly, applications not explicitly banned or listed as high-risk are largely left unregulated. The proposal does not confer any rights on individuals, but instead regulates the providers of artificial intelligence systems and entities making use of them in a professional capacity, limiting how big businesses can use AI. And lastly, the National Science Foundation is looking to foster the development of open source ecosystem in STEM fields and has allocated $28 million for new open source ecosystems.
1: Thank you, JT. on the Ask Noah show is Anthony Lovato, release manager Joshua Boniface, the project lead, and one hit song, software maintainer for the Roku client. Welcome, gentlemen, into Ask Noah. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. I appreciate you guys taking the time. So I want to start here. For those people who maybe haven't heard of Jellyfin, or maybe they've just kind of followed on the periphery, how did Jellyfin get
3: started? What is it? So I'll jump in on that one. Uh, So Pretty much the, uh, origin of Jellyfin lies in MB. Um, so most of us were MB users, uh, when we first started the project and the decision of MB to kind of go close source and just generally be fairly hostile towards the free and open source community was really an ineptus for us to kind of take it our own way, so to speak. So, um, they really announced they were going closed source in late November, uh, 2018 and we pretty much immediately were able to jump in and, and say well wait a minute you know we want a gpl you know free software media streamer out there and you know we forked their uh 3.5.2 code base and we're able to attract enough developers to really keep it going and build the solution we have today
1: so a lot of open source names make me giggle or laugh, and, and I think it's always interesting to find out where the origins of these names come from. So you're you're forking a project, essentially, and taking it, making sure to maintain it as an open source project. That was the idea from the beginning with Envy, with right? And so when that split, then you said, okay, we to hold true to open source values, then we need to pick this up and carry on. How did you land on Jellyfin? <laughs>
3: So, uh actually, the origins of that are pretty much a mystery to uh, all of us um, one of One of the people who was involved in in the original um, fork who isn 't very involved in the project these days, but uh Andrew um came up with the name we were kind of throwing a bunch of names around and i'm i'm terrible at naming stuff so uh, i was coming up with names like oh we could call it open b or something like that and he said i came up with these like three or four names and of them jellyfin seemed the most ridiculous and jumped out the most at me so i'm like let's go with that i like it it's it's distinctive people will remember this exactly. and the rest is history
1: I love that. I love that. So, what have been some of the biggest hurdles? I've never, I've never functioned as a software developer and never forked a project before. But I imagine that's
3: quite an undertaking. What
1: sort of things has been a struggle for you guys?
3: Um, I can give my perspective first, and then maybe if Anthony or uh, One Hit Song want to jump in. But um, for for us, I think you know, there's been different hurdles for different periods of the project. At the very beginning, um, our biggest hurdle was just getting um, a working solution. You know, from day one, we had a a pretty working server. I mean, there was things that were broken. Um, but for the most part, what we really lacked was clients and just the ability to actually get, get a build out there to a lot of users. So, you know, initially we really struggled with that. It took about a solid, you know, year and a half to uh, really get that to a point where we were comfortable saying, yeah, you know, this actually has some, uh, family acceptance factor, let's call it. And, you know, there's an app for at least a few major devices and the server's pretty stable and you can install it on, you know, basically any operating system you want. Um, and then later on, more recently, what we've actually really struggled with is something I've uh, I've written about myself, which is um, what, what I'll call the open source bystander problem. <laughs> and basically it's the case that we built a really great team, but being that we're all volunteers, um, kind of there's been a slow and steady drop off in the ability to really develop the project you know early on a lot of us were able to put in you know crazy numbers of hours you know almost full time job level hours into the project on a week to week basis and you know that's not obviously sustainable long term so we've kind of hit a plateau now where we're we're really looking for you know for lack of a better word, some new blood into the project and really hoping to get some some new people, you know, contributing and implementing some features and getting some some additional work done to kind of help us get over this hump that we're in.
1: What kind of help specifically are you looking for? Are you looking for software developers? Are you looking for people that can help fix bugs? Are you looking for people to write documentation? What would be most helpful and powerful to the project right now?
3: Well, I think for... Pretty much all of those things. Um, that's kind of, you know, both the the beauty of an open source project like this, that's purely volunteer run, and also kind of one of its limitations is that, you know, we're always looking for someone to do something. Um, and, and it can be whatever, you know, a person thinks could be valuable. So, I mean, there is like a huge backlog of issues and bugs, you know, backlogs of features, things that I know... Um, people have uh, brought up time and time again as things that they'd like, but you know, no one's really moved towards developing it. And you know, on the same token, there's lots of functionality in the program that might be missed or might be you know, not immediately obvious that is something where, you know, if someone's used that feature, having someone document it would be key because, you know, it's, it's, it's something that kind of ties into, you know, our philosophy and our model of working where, you know, um, we, we tend to scratch our own itch to use the term. So, you know, my use case is totally different than probably, you know, one hit songs use case or from some user's use case. Uh, we might all have very, very different ideas about, you know, what we use the software for. So if there's functionality that, you know, I've never touched in all my years of using it, that someone else might consider a really critical piece of, um, like piece of the program or piece of the solution for them, then that's, you know, very hard for me to document, but it's something that that person, it would be amazing if, you know, they were able to come in and say, oh, yeah, I use this feature all the time, you know, here's how you set it up, here's how you'd use it, you know, that sort of thing. And that's from the documentation side, something that would be really valuable to the project.
1: I love that. I've, I've I've said it numerous times in this program. I, I believe it's just true to the core that the people who are passionate about their own problems are sometimes the people that come up with some of the best solutions because they're eating their own dog food. Right. And so when you come across a niche that doesn't work for you, you, you change it. I want to explore that a little bit further. So you guys eat, live and breathe jellyfish. So. If you're sitting down in your home and you're going to go purchase hardware to set up and install the server side of Jellyfin, and you're going to go set up the client side of Jellyfin, what kind of things would you purchase? And kind of walk me through that process. Of how would you get that set up?
3: So I think, in terms of hardware, one of one of the benefits of of the software is that it can run on a very very wide range of you know systems. Basically, um, you know, I we've seen people running it on Raspberry Pis, um, on small little, you know, uh, like Intel NUC boxes or small mini PCs, all the way up to crazy people like me who have a rack of like eight servers in their basement uh, (laughs) that they just happen to run it in one of their VMs. Um, So really, if someone's coming into it fresh, um, it really depends on their needs. Uh, The biggest hurdle being um, transcoding support. So hardware transcoding is one of our, you know, kind of key... Feature differentiators. Um, both Plex and MB charge for that. We provide it for free and do a lot of work to optimize it. But the hardware that you'd run hardware transcoding on is, you know, one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle. So there's a lot of flexibility in the sense that, you know, if you're willing to make sure that all your clients are compatible with all your media at all times, you can run it on like a tiny little, you know two-watt Raspberry Pi, no transcoding, and it'll just act as a as basically a back-end media manager um, versus someone like, say, me. I stream to m- my family over a very slow internet connection, so I make extremely heavy use of uh, hardware transcoding on an NVIDIA GPU to you know lower the bitrate of the video to something that can actually be streamed over the internet. So I require a pretty substantial uh, GPU to run that and really everything in between um that's kind of the beauty of you know the kind of self-hosted home lab scenario is you can really work with anything you want i think in terms of hardware um you know a lot of people you know they might get a used server from work or they might find a good deal on ebay or even just go out and purchase a NUC or something like that from a from a retail store and you know get started on that and I think having that flexibility is a, a real benefit. They can get started and at least mess around with it without really investing a lot of money if they don't want to.
4: And on the client side, we we're trying to kind of meet everybody where they are, right? So uh, if you already have some equipment that you can use, whether it's uh, an Amazon Fire Stick or uh, Chromecast with Google TV or a Roku um, you know, we've got clients that already run on those platforms and they're getting better all the time. So the, of course the ultimate client would be a PC or something that you can run, uh, on, but we're, we've got our, uh, our own clients that have been making leaps and bounds in transcoding support, uh, being able to play back content natively without having to rely on hardware transcoding. So, uh, people can use a Raspberry Pi or another low power PC as their, as their server. And, uh, get the best experience possible. And that's why we're pushing a lot now with um with uh sort of the more popular devices. So we just recently in the past couple months um expanded our LG Web OS support, for example. And that's also still a, a growing process. And then from there, next up is uh you know Samsung Tizen. We've got a client that you can install if yourself if you're a little more technically inclined. But uh, you know, we we want to be right there in the store with everybody else, and uh, it takes a, a lot of work to get there. But once we're there, uh, we've you know we'll uh, we'll meet we'll meet people where they are on um, the most popular places.
1: I love that. So, you know, you said a couple of things there that piqued my interest. So I love the idea of meeting people where they are, because it it, it really is how people win over a, a market is meeting them in where where they're what they're already doing. It's kind of the example I use is the whole Lotus 123 and how Excel kind of took over by first meeting users where they were with the spreadsheet. So I love that idea. But you also said, working with Cody you said if you had you know, if resources were infinite and you weren't constrained to anything, perhaps a PC with Cody running on. Could, I, could we dig into that a little bit? So you don't see yourself as a competitor to Cody per se. It's, this is something that might work really well hand in hand.
4: Yeah. So whether it's Cody or, uh, you know, our own, for example, uh, jellyfin media player, which is a, a desktop client with MPV in it. Um, so it can play a lot of formats and things natively, uh, some people like the Kodi interface, for example, or some people might like our interface. So wherever they are comfortable, uh, you know, we've got some way to hopefully integrate and get into uh, bring their content to that place.
1: I love that. That's the beauty of open source, everything being able to work together. A couple of more technical questions. How soon are, would you guys consider or might you be looking at something like MySQL or a Postgres uh, server for the, for the database?
3: That's a very good question, and it's actually one of, I think, I think it might be our oldest feature request, because it's something I wanted out of MB before we even formed (laughs) (laughs) Jellyfin. And I think it was the second or third thing I said, we should do this. Just a really Um, big itch. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, whether you want to run it redundantly or just to, you know, take a load off that mean system. Um, the main limitation to that has been the fact that and I want to try to be a little bit generous here, but it's it's hard to get around it, that the code from MB was not in any way conducive to that. It it was tied so um, I'll say incorrectly into just raw SQLite schemas in the back end that okay. we've effectively had to take on the project of rewriting the entirety of the media storage backend in order to be able to support that. And we're about 60% of the way there. Um, but that last 40% is the huge hurdle because that's the kind of core here is the media and what is it storing? Like, you know, what are all the titles, the actors, the, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So there's been a long running project and we have a developer, Um, who's been working on that, you know, on and off in his spare time for pretty much the past year and a half to two years. And he's gotten quite far. Um, As I said, we've ported, we basically ported, there were five databases, we ported four of them to the new format. And then the fifth one is the really difficult one, because it's the one that really ties into the API and the back end. So at this point, we have no ETA on it. It could be six months, it could be two years depending on you know whether he's able to get that moving and you know find the free time to work on it. But it's, it's also you know something that we really want out of the solution to be able to fully decouple the you know backend database format from the front like the, the actual server itself. And I'm
1: guessing it would go faster if there was a developer that showed up and said, hey, you know what? I know everything there is to know about backend, uh, uh, MySQL and Postgres server backends, and so I'll come along and help you guys do all of this. You just tell me how you kind of want it laid out, and I'll help you get the work done. That would be great, right?
3: That's pretty much exactly it. I mean, you know, this guy we have working for us is is uh, very, very smart. Um, it's... Patrick Barron is his name. Um, I'm pretty sure that's public. (laughs) If not, he can crucify me. Um, But, yeah, he's been uh, working on, you know, that. But as I said, yeah, free time. So if there was someone who was able to come in as a developer who's got, you know, that experience with um, the the actual technology that we're moving to is called EF Core within the Microsoft.NET framework um, and who's able to, you know, help, like, hey, here's a schema that would work for, you know, all storing all the metadata, and here's how we'd integrate the API endpoints. That would be something that would be really, really huge. The project, um, yeah, and hopefully, you know, that's something that can materialize in the in the future. How-
1: how about donations? If somebody, like, let's say, there were people out there that were able to contribute money to the project, you know, maybe there 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 could be enough eventually raised to pay for Patrick's time, so that he could, you know, take some time and develop some of these things that have that have been on the wish list for a long time.
3: Oh, that is that is that is a question. Uh, <laughs> that is that is something that we have some very very strong opinions on, and. Um, I'm glad you mentioned it, because it's something that's come up a lot in, in, you know, not just recent, but literally from day one of the project, we had people say, hey, can I contribute money to this? And one of our kind of core philosophical ideals, and at least, well, one of my core philosophical ideals that I think everyone on the team at least somewhat agrees with, is that we want to keep money out of the project entirely. So a big factor in our decision to fork was MB going closed source. And I've always looked at this from the lens of, you know, why did MB go closed source? Why did some other tools like Plex was originally open source, as far as I'm aware, why did they go closed source? Why did um, another project that I was tangentially related to a few years ago that I still use AirSonic or Subsonic was the original one. uh, Why did they go closed source? And it really always comes back to one thing that, you know as soon as i think as soon as you add money to the project as soon as it becomes something someone gets paid for you end up with a perverse incentive for the project it it no longer is the case that hey we're just a bunch of people who love this solution and want to make it good it suddenly becomes hey i have to make money off this Or I am making money off this. How can I make more money off this? And you get into a situation that so many open source projects run into where you have the monetization problem. And I think at at least that a large number of the monetization models are actually user hostile. Um, You know, that's not something everyone might agree with, but I think they are. And that's something we really don't want the project to go down the slippery slope of because i think once we get to that point you know there there's so many problems that come out of that in the sense of you know how much do you pay certain people for the work they do who qualifies for getting money you know and on the flip side you know how much does it privilege a given user if they're able to throw five hundred dollars at or a thousand dollars at their feature when maybe there's a hundred people who can't afford that who want another feature so We've always taken the, you know, the model and the idea that if we just keep money out of the project entirely, we have to, you know, deal with those questions and those problems, and we can just say, look, it's volunteer-based. Something gets implemented when it gets implemented uh, by someone who's just interested in doing it, and if that means that the project is a little slow to, you know, implement a certain feature, that's fine that's just how we're going to operate and and move forward and you know one day you know we might get that feature we might never get that feature but at the very least you know i see it as a matter of integrity in that sense
1: do you worry at all that without having a funding model that it'll be difficult to attract and keep talent to keep the project moving
3: I definitely think it is, um, and it is something we we've had some issues with. You know, it comes back to asking uh, the question earlier about you know how do we you know get new contributors and and all of that, and it it definitely is an issue in in one sense, but I also think it can be a blessing in the other sense because it also removes, I think, a lot of pressure that might come into certain contributors to produce work for the purpose just for the purpose of getting a bug bounty you know and and like i don't say i'll give an example with with like no names it's not something anyone's actually done but let's say you know you had a 500 bug bounty and someone comes in and says i really want to claim that bug bounty you know i really need that money you know are they going to produce the best feature possible just because they want to make the money. You know, is it going to turn into a case of well, what if there's a disagreement? Are there going to be three people trying to you know implement this feature in different ways to make that money? And who wins? Um, what if we you know don't want, don't even want the feature? Which is something we ran into earlier in the project where someone made a bug bounty for a feature that we didn't want to implement, and we actually, Anthony can probably expand on this story, but we actually asked Bug Bounty to remove us from all of their like remove all bug bounties for our software from them because we didn't want that incentive. And, you know, it 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 really is what it is. We kind of built the project around that philosophy and that idea. So we just kind of accept that it, it does make certain things harder, but it also makes certain things easier.
1: Anthony, would you mind sharing additional details? I'd be interested to learn, what was this bug bounty that was opened up on your behalf? It was a feature you didn't even, that you weren't particularly looking for?
4: The feature itself was support for playing back uh, content from RAR files um, without having to extract them ahead of time. So keeping things in the actual RAR archives, uh, split or whole, I don't recall, I think it, it didn't distinguish, but keeping them in the RAR archive and playing that back. Uh, and it was actually a feature request that this particular user had made on MB, uh many years ago. And then when Jellyfin started, not long after, Uh, They actually contacted, um, and I forget the name of the website, uh, but they contacted the the Bug Bounty uh, site and service and asked them to move the bounty over to a new issue that they had opened on the Jellyfin server repository. Um, We pretty much uh, looked at a couple options, as we do for most requests, just to kind of see, okay, is this something that we might Take on? Is this something that might be feasible? Uh, even ignoring the part about the bounty to begin with. And we just saw a lot of complications around dealing with RAR archives since it is uh, a proprietary compression format and there's proprietary libs for, for handling that. Uh, so we sort of looked at it in on the one sense. Um, do we want to try and take on this kind of thing that could introduce other liabilities? or do we want to just kind of keep going we never had the support so do we just kind of keep going without uh without that support and so while we left a request as a thing that something somebody can implement we didn't want somebody to necessarily just run in and uh like joshua suggested maybe make the uh, like a, a quick easy solution that wouldn't be the best for the future of the project and we've we've changed so much even in the four years since that request was originally opened. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in that process of handling that, I actually reached out to the bounty website and I said, Hey, uh, if there's any way that you can do this, we'd like to completely, you know, be delisted from your platform. And uh, it's, it's funny too, because there's a lot of different places that do things like that. And some of them actually didn't even have a way to, for a project to get sort of delisted or get removed uh, until I asked, actually, uh, just because we want to stick to that kind of idea that if you're going to do something with Jellyfin, uh, we want you to be as passionate about it as we are, um, or as much as you can, anyway, to to help it make to help make the project better for everyone. It's uh there's something that we kind of don't talk about too often, which is that there's some there's no real way to know how many people use jellyfin and that's sort of by design. There's no, uh, you know, data that we collect through any of the server or uh, any of the clients or anything, uh, nothing that we collect on purpose. There are some involuntary things that come up. Um, so like, uh, download stats from the Google play store or from the Apple app store or the Roku channel store. And, I even, as the release manager, when I go publish a release, I just I go right to publishing. I I try not to look at any of that stuff there. But for the involuntary statistics, the last time I checked, which is maybe about a month ago, just because we were celebrating, you know, quietly celebrating the anniversary of the project, um, I want to say we had something around hundred fifty thousand Android TV installs. Wow, a um, hundred thousand on the Android phone client uh amazon doesn't give you any stats so we don't know about that and i don't remember the apple stats and roku one hit song i don't know if you remember what the numbers were on that i can't think of it off the top of my head i think it was what like 120 130 maybe yeah easy i I think so easily that's just what we kind of know about that doesn't count people that install mm. the server and maybe just use the web client on their own or use cody or uh you know install the app themselves like they sideload the app onto their device or mm-hmm. or anything and the, the number just grows
1: that's awesome i'm i'm thrilled that you guys are having such success And I, and it's i love the passion inside of the project. So tell me a little bit about where you see the future of Jellyfan. Where do you see it going? Could you see things like plans for OAuth 2 or other SSO providers?
3: I definitely think that's some, a feature that I know that it is a feature that's been requested and it, it's absolutely something we'd love to implement. And I think it's one of those things where um one, one aspect of the software that, you know, I think I think a lot of people do know about but not necessarily like comprehend how it works is is that we actually have a fairly extensive plugin system that was inherited from MB, which, which is a fantastic like feature of the software, um, where it's possible to write a plugin to do nearly everything that the server doesn't do. So, you know, we have some basic ones where we have, you know, a plugin for LDAP authentication that basically just hooks into the function that authenticates a user and does an LDAP lookup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a bunch of metadata providers in there and that's something where um, we, th- I think there's like great room for a plugin to do that. Um, it hasn't been implemented yet, um, obviously by anyone, which is uh, quite a shame because it is a popular feature request. I do know that. But it's, it's also the case that, you know, we're really just waiting for someone to would be interested in you know writing that functionality to come in and implement it, and um, then we could you know have that feature. It's the it's the case of most of our features are like that. It's it's really just waiting on that that itch that someone has and there and someone's ability to scratch that itch and actually do the implementation, and then we're happy to include it. I mean, we'll do pretty much anything in a plugin if it's possible. So, you know, we kind of go go with that model as much as possible for that sort of extended functionality.
1: How, how about things that aren't plugin based, like for example, hardware transcoding, what is the, what is recommended for somebody who maybe hears about what you were talking about with hardware transcoding and needing a very beefy graphics card? Where would you recommend somebody start with that? Could you give some examples of some hardware somebody might want to pick up?
3: Absolutely. Um, pretty, pretty much. There's a lot of, Uh, a lot of options in that space. I mean, as much as there are a lot of options for uh, GPUs, you know, three, but really um, we, we do support all the major players in that space. Um, And there's, gosh, I think there's seven or eight different libraries um, involved in hardware transcoding. But really, if someone's coming in um, day one, you know, hey, I have a fresh server, I want to implement this. There's kind of two big recommendations that at least I'd personally make based on my experiences and that seem to be pretty universal among the community. Um, The first is NVIDIA because NVIDIA GPUs um, and the NVNC and NVDEC libraries um are extremely well supported in ffmpeg which is what we use for the actual transcoding in the back end and they're well supported by us Um, they work quite phenomenally and there's actually a a page um and I don't remember it off the top of my head, I'd have to search for it, but it's a page that someone put together, you know, many years ago that's constantly updated for Plex actually, but it goes through and lists every NVIDIA GPU and what their capabilities are for transcoding, you know, from various formats to various formats, how many simultaneous streams you can expect to get out of them, that sort of thing. And, you know, I've posted that resource to people countless times to say, hey, if you're looking at the NVIDIA side, here's here's a comparison of GPUs and, well, you know, what you might want to consider as your options. Um, and then the second big one is Intel QuickSync, which is also extremely well supported um, by FMBeg and by us, um, and which is continually getting new features, our um, our uh, ffmpeg developer or main ffmpeg developer has been really pushing that in recent you know the last year or so um as a great option it's extremely it's far more power efficient because it's usually built into modern intel cpus so at the very least even if you don't have a dedicated gpu if you have a quick sync capable cpu you can use this functionality and it does very well with all the latest formats um some of the future formats i believe it does or will support AV, AV1 AV encoding, um, all that. It's very easy to get going. So those are kind of the two I'd personally recommend to someone who's looking into hardware transcoding. Um, but we do, of course, we also support, um, though it's less feature complete, we support the two main AMD protocols. Um, VA API is kind of the big one, which is technically supposed to be cross-GPU, and you can use every GPU type with it, but it's really only the better option for AMD-based cards. Um, and I personally haven't had much experience with that, but that's because I, I bought the wrong GPU and then bought an, an NVIDIA one later. Um, but I know people use it all the time and it works quite well. There's also AMF, I believe it's called, does a similar thing to like NVN and NVDeck that it's like a specific AMD library. And then there is also technically support for the hardware encoder in the Raspberry Pi. And I can't remember if it's OMF or OVF or something like that is the name of it. It's more limited, but it is available, and I think people have gotten it working.
1: How about, this is kind of an off offhanded uh, question, but, I hear that you guys are using matrix and element and I'm a little bit of a matrix and element nerd. So even if we're talking primarily about Jellyfin, I gotta ask, tell me about the decision to go matrix and element. How's it been working as a communications platform?
3: That's a good question. Um, It was actually something we decided pretty much like day one of the project. We were looking for, you know, how do we coordinate with each other outside of GitHub and how do we do real time chat? And you know, of course the first thing that popped into a lot of people's minds was, oh, let's set up a discord. And among the kind of four or five main people who were chatting about this at the time, which was me, Anthony, Andrew, and then we had our Russian developer Vasily and someone else, I can't remember who else. Um, we all kind of, like a bunch of us said, we don't really use Discord. And I said, no, I, I don't use Discord. I kind of hate it. Um, so we looked into the options. Was, you know, Do we want to create a forum? Do we want to create this? And someone said, hey, have you heard of this element? chat system. You know, it's a self-hosted, federated chat. And I mean, I kind of said, ooh, that sounds really interesting. Like, let's go with it. So um, we set up a few rooms um, on the main matrix.org instance. And I myself set up a home server for myself and Anthony and a couple other people already had or set up home servers for it. And it really quickly took off as our kind of main chat system um just because it was it was actually among the people early in the project it was the one that everyone could agree to use and then much later on like maybe uh anthony can correct me on this but i think it was two years ago or so um we were able to set up bridges um using some of the bridge software that's available for matrix to actually bridge into a discord server that we set up for those who didn't want to use matrix and who used discord extensively and we also bridged into irc so we could set up a, a few irc rooms and with those bridges everyone is effectively communicating in one giant room regardless of what actual protocol they're using which has been a huge boon for especially just uh, end user troubleshooting we're able to support people on you know as we've said a few times you know wherever they are and whatever they want to use
1: Anthony Lovato, release manager, Joshua Boniface, the project lead, and one-hit song, software maintainer for the Roku kind. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Ask Noah. I really appreciate the enthusiasm, what you're doing for the open-source community. We'll get you back on the program soon. All right. Thank, thank you, you very much.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: So that's actually a nice lead-in to... Uh, Matrix 2.0. So one Matrix 1.0 came out in 2020, and the timing was particularly great because we were using it for self. We soon after switched to for it to for Ultra Speed, and have been using it now to power our community chat room, which you can find at geeklab.ninja. If you have had a struggle in the past. I highly recommend you check out what Matrix has been doing since that time. I want to play a clip from Fosdom where Matthew was presenting.
0: So we have gone deep down the rabbit hole, so the saying goes, to try to optimize the performance on Element X so it is as snappy as iMessage or WhatsApp or Telegram rather than the slightly clunky beast that we've had historically.
1: And they have demos of this so you can actually see it in action. And what they've done is they've gone to something called sliding sync, which makes it way, way more
0: performant. The key design criteria for sliding sync is that performance is constant with the number of rooms. And this was the horrible mistake uh, with the old API, and frankly, the whole design of matrix historically, that as you join more rooms, it gets linearly slower for basically everything. And that was fine for the first few years when people are in a couple of hundred rooms, but obviously we don't want to predicate the success of the protocol on, yeah, it's fine as long as you're not a power user, or it's fine as long as you don't actually use it.
1: And so what they, are, what they have done is they've gone from the Matrix, what they're calling 1.0 experience, to the Matrix 2.0 experience.
0: So for instance, Matrix HQ right now, there are 92,948 state events for every user who has ever joined or changed their name or left, and a whole bunch of other things. If you actually look at the subset you need to participate in the room, it's 152. So this speeds up the room join time from 15 minutes to 14 seconds. So finally, we will hopefully have fixed the problem where somebody at and installs Matrix Synapse, immediately tries to join Matrix HQ, sits there for 15 minutes looking at errors as their computer explodes and wonders why everybody thinks Matrix is as amazing as it is. So if that's you, if that
1: resembles your experience, then I highly recommend you go check out the latest version of matrix give element another shot we record the show on tuesday 6 p.m central we invite you to join us live for the show it's the best way to experience it but you can find all the show notes and references resources they're available at podcast.askmillershow.com have a good week see you next week